Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Pat Davidson. Pat shares a ton of interesting concepts based upon the materials featured within his book, A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement, Rethinking the Big Patterns. He also has a seminar series underneath the same name. Pat discusses the seven pillars of movement and how to advance an assortment of individuals towards proficient and dynamic movement options. We end our conversation by talking about the propulsion arc and the gait process and discuss how finding the appropriate inputs for strength, power, plyometrics, speed, and other methodologies will result in the ideal circumstances for most athletic populations. This is episode 50 and my one-year anniversary for the show. So if you've been listening since the beginning, thank you. I look forward to many more. Now, on to the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Dr. Pat Davidson. Pat has a PhD in exercise physiology and is involved in all things fitness and athletic development. Pat is a former strongman competitor, and he is the creator of the Rethinking Big Pat- the Big Patterns seminar series and online courses. He also has a book under the same name, um, and I've read this book multiple times, so that's kind of what guided me towards uh, Dr. Pat Davidson's teachings and kind of the different things that we'll discuss today. So a lot of the concepts that we'll discuss in great length today are even discussed in greater length with, within his uh, series and within his book. So today is my 50th episode and my one-year anniversary, so I couldn't think of a better guest to have than Dr. Pat Davidson. So super excited to have you on to sit down and discuss things with you. Well, thank you very much, and congratulations on 50 episodes and one year doing that. That's, that's, uh, that's really awesome. I think the first time I ever heard you speak was probably on Joel Smith's podcast, and uh, a lot of the things that we'll discuss are probably kind of shaped towards some of the things I heard you discuss on that day, but it just uh, kind of stood out to me and I guess showed me some different things that I've been thinking about for some time. As you watch more people move, I watch people move all day. I deal with a lot of teenagers moving. So you can imagine the beautiful shapes that I see taking place. Right. Yeah. And, and you watch a lot of different, uh, you, you just see variability in movements, even within something as simple as a back squat. And a lot of the things that we'll get into today are kind of about muscular orientation um, and why we might see different movement preferences or movement choices, uh, motor programs displayed. So, so a lot of the things that you say in your book were just kind of like light bulb moments for me. I was like, oh, that's a great way of explaining it. I've been thinking about it that way, but I just haven't put it into words. So if you can just kind of jump in and talk about what led you to coming up with the rethinking big patterns system uh, and to yeah. put it down on paper. Sure. I think that for me, one of my early influences that kind of led to this thought process was Mike Boyle. Um, you know, I'm from Massachusetts and, and Boyle and Cressy own Massachusetts. And, you know, what I, what I love about Boyle is how much of a categorical thinker he is. You know, I, I can remember early on him talking about Ian King's methodology of breaking up resistance training into, uh, you know, hip dominant, knee dominant, horizontal push, pull, vertical push, pull. And I just thought that was such an easier way to organize your compound movements from a resistance training standpoint than all this other naming stuff that we have. Um, and so I, I really like that. And then the more I learned, you know, he has a linear day and a lateral day. 
being exposed to his stuff got me exposed to at that time athletes performance and Mark for staging and now with their exos, but a very similar, you know, they, they really worked hand in hand to create their systems. Exos would have their multi-directional day as opposed to lateral day, but they both use this concept of seamless integration of the training session and that everything in the training session would have kind of a theme based on the movements that you're trying to accomplish. You know, it would start with tissue quality and move on to uh, uh, tissue reactivity and then tissue development, but it would all be encased inside of like, hey, today's a linear day. So from a tissue preparation standpoint, we're going to do things like foam roll, our quadriceps, hamstrings, um, you know, because those are linear based muscles. On our multi-directional day, we might foam roll our adductors and abductors. Uh, And from there with our, uh, you know, reactivity kinds of things, we're going to do short sprints or sprint to backpedal sorts of agility drills on our linear day. And on our multi-directional day, we might be doing things more in line with like side shuffling or maybe a 5-10-5 or something along those lines. And even the lifting would be in in this kind of a vein. So it, it was very much like, wow, I really like the way that it's organized and broken up from a movement perspective. And, and really from there, you know, I, I went on and I, I, I think that I, I've always trained very hard. You know, I come from a sporting background that's like a hard training sort of a thought process, you know? Um, I think that where I'm from in Massachusetts, like everything is just built around hard work, you know? Um, every coach I had always distilled that. I ended up getting into mixed martial arts in the early days of that sport. And I really learned how to train and diet to be able to make weights and to be able to have, you know, endurance and strength and all that kind of stuff come out during a, a fight. Um, and after that, you know, again, kind of getting into formal education and strength and conditioning as a, as a major and, and trying to learn from some of the best in the business. Uh, and even after that, getting into the sport of strongman, where it's again, like, you know, you better train or you're going to get buried in that sport. Like you literally have no shot. Um, it, I, I end up, I think if, if you put that kind of mileage on yourself, like you're going to be in significant amounts of pain at a certain point and getting exposure through Boyle originally to like a thought process like Gray Cooks was my beginnings of kind of this merger of physical therapy and training and from gray cook kind of learning about a lot of the practices that the checks would use like you know yanda or uh collage creating dns system and borrowing from that vaclav voita approach in germany with the stimulating the reflexive parts of the body kind of from from learning about some of the dns stuff hearing about PRI and transitioning into learning uh, all the PRI concepts and, you know, Postural Restoration Institute, I think they do an amazing job of teaching anatomy and teaching like uh, the ways in which we can manipulate the axial skeleton to affect uh, limbs and to affect what's going on with muscles from an inhibitory and facilitatory standpoint and understanding the roles that other systems like the respiratory system and the neurological system have from an impact standpoint 
on what's going on with skeletal muscle. You know, that I spent a significant amount of time in the PRI world. And I, I think I, I really took an enormous amount away from them. And through this journey, kind of getting hooked up with Bill Hartman and the IFAST people and, you know, kind of, kind of capping things off for me from a moving stand, movement standpoint, really learning a lot more about Bill's specific thoughts in regards to expansion and compression and the entire model that he kind of has coming from there. And I, I do know that we're going to talk about the propulsion arc today. And that is Bill's baby. You know, I mean, he, he really uh, conceptualized that piece. And, you know, I, I think that what I'm good at is number one, like I love to actually train. So I'm always looking for tools to add that I can selfishly utilize to literally just make my own training better. Of course, the people that I work with and help develop, but I'm, I'm a nut about my own training. So I, it's kind of like my brain is always trying to learn. If I notice something that seems like it could be a really big piece for me, like I'm going to gravitate towards that very strongly and I'm going to really fixate on it very, very strongly. I'm going to practice it. I'm going to really try to master it. And once I've done that, I think that where my unique ability lies is that I try to take a lot of things and synthesize them into one thing and then ultimately identify where things are relative to each other from like a model building standpoint. And that's what I tried to do in terms of the book and with the, the seminars and all the other stuff that is rethinking the big patterns is like, Hey, there's all of this sort of nebulous information that lives here, out there, training, rehab, uh, you know, PRI thoughts, Bill Hartman thoughts, Gray Cook thoughts, you know, check Yanda thoughts. Like, what's the common denominators for these things? And how do I organize them so that there's like a, a giant umbrella that encases all of them? And then if I want to pull from this particular region, how, what's like the appropriate sort of like drop down sequence to put me here? Or where are all of these things relative to one, one another? So that if I want to use, you know, Charlie Francis, Derek Hansen style training, like what, where does that live relative to everything else? And then ultimately, how do I create trajectories sport for specific kinds of athletes and that's really the next project that i want to work on like hey now that i have this gigantic playbook what sort of a strategy from this should i utilize with you based upon analysis of the activities that you're doing so that i really don't waste your time whatsoever from a training process because quite honestly i i do think that like you know from an efficiency standpoint or from a pure uh, analysis standpoint, you have very little time to work with people. You know, there's only so many days a week and so many weeks a year and a very few number of real years that you have to actually work within the window of someone's athletic prime and development. And to waste any of that time, it, there's just not that much of it, quite honestly. And a lot of interesting talking points that we can kind of jump in and we will uh, kind of going towards 
the idea of systems and things, you have to have a system which you can identify with. But like what you were speaking to there well, and I've had this on the show a couple of times talking about that a good system is flexible and not rigid. Like you were talking about what what's kind of like a doctor. I've also heard like you talk about it like medicine, like exercise yep. is medicine and movement is medicine. People say that all the time. And I agree with that. It's choosing the right prescription for, for your clientele that you're seeing. Um, and you talking about using different strategies. I love that because I think that's kind of where we'll end and our talking uh, points today, talking about, you know, wanting to be reactive versus, you know, not having a lot of time constraints within something. I work with power lifters. I work with field sport people. I work with people that do track and field. I work with some people who do powerlifting. some, they're high school athletes, and then they like to run uh, track as well, you know, so I have to pull and take and give what they need at different times of the year. So a lot of my inspiration has been taken from the things you've been able to synthesize, and I've been able to use that. So I think a, a natural starting point based off of your book is the seven pillars of movement. So if we can just kind of touch on those, yeah. because they'll give us kind of a shooting point uh, from there that we can kind of go into different areas of this. And the thing that I really like as well about your system is that there's no bad exercise. I've heard you say that too. There's only bad exercises for, for certain people. And even with the nose, I see you fix things. Like you make small little subtle adjustments, which is what I'm kind of wanting to get to uh, how we can make people more proficient in different planes and uh, push towards yeah. a model of proficiency. So starting out, let's just talk about the seven pillars of movement and just what those are and what they encompass roughly. Sure. And, and to me, like the seven pillars are what ultimately, like, if, if I'm trying to, like, I'm always looking for specificity, you know, like, how specific can I make an exercise? And also, is the exercise being done right? Like, to me, the seven, when I bring something through this filter of the seven pillars, I arrive at an incredibly specific exercise. And I, I know what to look for and to listen to to be able to determine whether or not the person did the thing properly. So to me, that's like, you know, that's a big deal. It begins with pillar one as being movement quality. And movement quality is descriptive. It's not how good something is. It's describing the shape of the movement and it's describing the direction that the movement moves through. So for shape, I break that down into 13 different motor patterns. And those are breathing, core exercises for the thorax, core exercises for the pelvis, change of direction, locomotion, throwing, triple extension. And then there's hip dominant resistance training exercises, knee dominant, horizontal pushing, horizontal pulling, vertical pushing, and vertical pulling. So within those 13, I break them up into three different groups where I've got control patterns, I've got athletic patterns and I've got resistance patterns. And the first three are the control patterns, the breathing and the core exercises. And then the middle four are the athletic patterns, which is locomotion, change of direction, triple extension, throwing. And then the last are the resistance patterns. You're hinging, you're squatting, you're pushing, you're pulling. And I try to, as you kind of were alluding to, I look at this as the beginning of kind of a medical prescription in a lot of ways. Like what motor patterns are essential for you? What population do you make up? You know, if you are a competitive athlete that plays, sorry about, we got fire trucks going by here. If you're a competitive athlete that participates in most of the major American athletic activities that we like to watch, 
probably a court athlete, a field athlete, or an ice athlete. And to me, like the, the motor patterns that dominate there are locomotion, change direction, triple extension, and throwing. And to me, throwing comes in, it's, it's almost more striking, but it's projecting things through space. If you are part of the general population that's going to work out with a personal trainer or going to a regular commercial gym or something like that, the main motor patterns for you are the resistance patterns. And if you are someone that would fall into a special population, someone that has orthopedic conditions, or that's the primary one that I'm usually thinking of, but there's also like metabolic conditions like asthma, for instance, then the primary motor patterns for you are probably going to be the control patterns or anyone that's hurt kind of that's their primary patterns right now is the breathing and the core exercises. And, you know, I look at each, each group also as being like, what's the primary reason? Like what, what outcome am I looking for, for these particular patterns? Control patterns are used to change table test measurements. So, you know, all my range of motion pieces for arms, legs, necks, trunks, and, and hips. That's what I use them for. I, I don't use them just to have people doing ab things for Instagram or something like that. Like, I don't get that. Like, that, that just doesn't make any damn sense to me. I'm looking to kind of open the training playbook for people with control pattern exercises. And once the playbook is opened, now hopefully they're not a special population anymore. Now hopefully... If they were an injured athlete, they're just an athlete. And if they're an injured general population person, they're just a regular person looking to work out and look better. So now that I've kind of checked that box, now when I look at athletic patterns, this is typically the region where I'm looking for the elasticity, the reactivity, the ability to coil and uncoil and project things through space in a really dramatic high rate of force development. Uh, manner. And when I look at the resistance patterns for, I would say 99% of people, the primary thing that I'm trying to accomplish is stimulation of growth of muscle tissue. You know, you could, you could make some small cases for very small populations like weightlifters, maybe your power lifters, where they're looking for something even more specific but most of the time when people are lifting weights, if I were to put people, someone on family feud and it was kind of like, why do people lift weights? You know, we polled a hundred people. The number one answer is probably always going to be to grow muscle tissue. So that to me is the, the, the big ticket item there. So that's what I kind of think of as pillar one is it's just, I spend a lot of time usually talking about this one, even though it's not as obvious it, do, it doesn't jump out as much to people i don't think it almost seems like a boring one that's kind of behind the scenes but to me it is really the the profundity of simplicity in a lot of ways like and, and one thing that you'll say as well about like i believe like movement quality under quality you have you have your pattern stance and plane correct yeah and like you're speaking to like the needs of people. And a lot of the times, like you're going to talk about like starting static probably and, and all these different things as well. But a lot of the times people don't advance and get the variability um, that you'll, that you were kind of alluding to. That was what was standing out to me because like you don't see people become dynamic because number one, you have to become you know, proficient in the foundational aspects you're talking about the bilateral yeah. aspect of it. But if you never get the variability, 
that's where you see people only being able to fit into that small box like you were talking about. Like, And then also isolation to integration. I also, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that do you speak a lot to isolating particular musculature and making them have the sensory competency and sensory feel like even within table tests or things like that uh, so that they know what that feels like? Because I've experienced with a lot of people I work with, they don't even know what it feels like to move the pelvis first, you know, like instead of moving something else. So they'll move up the chain or down the chain. So you, you utilize that obviously that's what you're speaking to for proficiency as well. Again, it's almost like I have a divide and conquer mentality. And it starts right from the beginning here where it's like, what's the point of each category of motor pattern and the point of the control pattern exercises is to change table tests. And I know that the only way that's going to happen is that there's has to be a high degree of sensory motor competency. So, you know, that, that jumps me to pillar uh, four, I believe, or three, I'm not, I, you know, I have to go through it, but it's, it's kind of like when people move the right thing relative to holding the other things still, and they feel very specific responses, then I'm very sure that I'm going to change table tests for that person and that they'll unlock the ability to move with more expression. And if they don't have enough, well, then I know that there's no way that they're going to do certain fitness exercises properly. Like they have no chance. Like I could be the greatest coach in the history of the world. And this person is not going to be able to do this drill properly because they don't have the potential to do it. You know, I I look at it like when it comes to coaching and training, there's the potential to do something properly, but then there's also the ability to coach it and get the person to actually do it properly. But some people don't even have the potential. So if you can separate and identify who is it that doesn't have the potential to learn something versus who has the potential, but they just need to be coached properly. That's, that's kind of where I, I start. And it's just sort of like, hey, let's just use table tests that are in kinesiology textbooks that we can all agree on rather than, you know, these functional movement kinds of analyses and like guesswork and blah, 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 like people eyeballing and you got to spend a weekend certification with someone just to try to get a sense of what they think is a dysfunctional movement versus a functional movement. That to me is just like completely irrelevant. I just want to see that you have passing table tests that meet human norms. And then from there, it just comes down to how good of a coach am I to be able to get someone to be able to execute the movements that I'm trying to have them train properly. And I try to define what a proper movement is within training categories from there. But yeah, it's, it's, again, it's like, when I think about these pillars, it's just building out specificity. And you were talking about variability being built off of a foundation of something being done properly in the first place. And yeah, to me, it's kind of like, that is definitely a thought process that I work from, from a very strong degree. Like, I give the example of like, hey, you know, you've probably seen Patrick Mahomes throw the no look pass and throw with his left hand and he can throw on the run and, you know, he can throw back across the whole field to the opposite hashes. Uh, You know, he can do these wild expressions of throwing. But I bet you back when he was a young kid first learning to throw a ball, a, a ball and the first coach that he worked with, I guarantee the first drill that first coach used 
wasn't running to the right and thrown back to the left across his body without looking. You know, it was probably a very fundamental drill. And that's what I want to be able to kind of, uh, what, one of the major things I want to accomplish is, is there a roadmap that can guide you towards selecting what should be the first drill that you use with people for every motor pattern so that you give the highest likelihood of success that the person does the drill right. Because if you do one drill right from a category, now you have that as a memory of how to do all your future variations off of. You know, like as another kind of example, if you've ever seen uh, someone that's been highly trained in weightlifting and they, you know, for years and years, they've snatched barbells and they've clean and jerk barbells. Well, if they come into your gym and they're trying to compete as an athlete in basketball now, you know, they're like, hey, I'm, I'm 16, but my dad coached me in weightlifting from the time I was eight. Now I'm, I'm sick of weightlifting. I just want to play other sports. I want to do the typical high school sport thing. And you're like, okay, cool. Well, you know, we have dumbbell snatches in your program here on day one. I guarantee that it's going to be the best dumbbell snatch you ever saw. You know what I mean? Even if they've never snatched a dumbbell in their life, they have this memory of the movement of a snatch. And it's like, they're going to have the triple extension, the sequencing, the whole deal. They'll probably jump under the dumbbell really nice. It'll probably pop at the top, everything that you're going to look for and that you'd have to coach the hell out of with another kid. They've got it. You know, the, the, the other thing that I always bring up that's non-athletic, but it's, it, it kind of illustrates the point better than anything is, is the motor pattern of your signature of your name. And, you know, I always have people do this at seminars, like, Hey, sign your name on your paper in front of you. Now put your pen down. Now just use your fingers and sign your name into the air in front of you. Now put your hand down. Now use your nose and sign your name into the air in front of you. Now put your, your foot in front of you and sign your name with your big toe and everyone can do it. And it's like, you'll use the same sequence of movements, the same strokes, the same angles, the same timing. It's, it's because the memory of it is burned into your brain and you built a million reps of signing your name with your hand. Now, it's, if I put actual ink on your nose and had you do it on a piece of paper, it might not look that great. But if I trained you for six weeks, twice a week with nose signing, then you'd probably get better at it. The rough estimation of the motor pattern is already ingrained in your brain. Now the variation needs to be trained specifically to refine it. But the question to me is always, do you need to do this variation? You know, is there any point in signing your name with your nose? No, there's not. So we don't need to do it. Say, I try to evaluate everything from a training perspective the same way. Am I utilizing variation for variation's sake? AKA, am I having people sign their name with their nose just for the sake of trying to impress other coaches with the amount of variation I put into a program? Or is this really important? And most of the time I see that it's probably not that important. And oftentimes coaches like variation for variation's sake because you have to coach for eight to 12 hours a day and you see the same thing done 10 times a day and you get sick of watching the same thing. And you just simply want to put something new in just so you can look at something different. It's just human nature. But I, I try to separate myself from instincts and nature and just write everything down in my own t 
time where I can be deliberate and think it through and then just let the system run and not, you know, be bogged down by things like boredom or, uh, you know, watching the same thing and concluding that it's not good based on just an emotional response to your preference to not watch the same thing all day. It's all about how we rationalize things too. like the things that we're going to offer here, especially in a little bit will be like, especially whenever you're watching human gate, people rationalize it so many different ways. It's like how we choose to describe things uh, because everybody's got their own sense of reality. Right. And as far as what was sticking out to me, there's with, with variation, it's a good thing, but like, but like you spoke to, because boredom can be prevalent in your clients too. So like with powerlifting, like speaking to what I do with my powerlifters, we don't lift traditional powerlifting all the time. Like my kids will do split stance things. My kids will do other things that I think most powerlifters don't typically do. And I think my kids don't get burnt out on it throughout the year because of that. And I think they're more dynamic athletes because of that. They may not be like your typical powerlifting store, 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 but they're power driven because a lot of them are multi-sport athletes, right? And they play other sports where they have to display those things. So something that I was kind of wanting to get into based off of that is the idea of, well, something that's important is taking load, velocity, and duration into account, which is your second uh, pillar as far as like quantity, because I want to get to that in a moment, but let's talk a little bit about how we can use variation to power people towards feeling the proper movement. Like let's say someone is inadequate in squat and this is probably going to come back Mm -hmm. later on. Uh, How can we make someone that can't get out of their freaking toes, fill, fill their heels, get proficient in the sagittal plane and progress through those planes. Sure. So, I, I mean, I just, again, like I, it's funny because I literally use my own system every time to try to answer every question that I have, whether it's my training, training somebody else, or answering a question like what you just asked me. And I always literally go through the pillars in my head to, to arrive at the thing. So, you know, as we've been talking about pillar one, and I've kind of beat the motor patterns to like a dead horse here, but it's uh, the motor pattern. And then there's the stances, the three stances, the bilateral stance, the front back stance, the lateral stance, and the planes, the sagittal plane, the frontal plane, and the transverse plane. And literally by, you know, having the same motor pattern done in a different stance or a different plane, it's different, you know? And, and I think that you've coached powerlifters, you've probably seen where a kid could be great at squatting in a bilateral stance, but then you have them try to do a single leg squat or a split squat. And oftentimes it's a total disaster. Even if it's a sagittal plane thing, they have to learn how to do this new thing. It's different enough where there isn't the same thing from like the signature concept. I, in my head, I always go back to that signature concept. Am I signing my name over again? Cause it's kind of like, Hey, uh, you know, uh, a goblet squad, a front squad, a back squad, an overhead squad. It's all kind of signature stuff. You know, I, I'm just signing my name with my elbow and one and my toes and the other. And, but a split squat is not the same. It's a whole different thing. And if it's in the frontal plane versus the sagittal plane, it's a whole different thing. It's a, it's a totally different animal at this point in time. So, you know, it is again, like, you've got enough variation built into pillar one to last your lifetime just by combining the different things. Pillar two goes and plays with movement quantity. And this is the easiest one out of the whole thing. 
exercise, I, I have quantities of load, velocity, duration. Load is divided into three realms, high, moderate, low. Uh, velocity is high, fast, slow, and medium. And duration is long, short, and, and moderate. And, um, you know, there's numbers that correspond to all those things that are cutoffs. But, I, you know, I won't go through those just to save time here. Pillar three is now movement standardization. And this is where you get into the sensory motor competencies of like, hey, a sagittal plane drill, what I'm looking for is I want sagittal centering. In. And I would look at this from the side. And this is where the center of mass of the skull is over the center of mass of the thorax, which is over the center of mass of the pelvis. And I have the ability for the rib cage to retract without causing a loss of centering of the three uh, parts of the axial skeleton. On top of that, in the sagittal plane, when someone's doing a sagittal plane drill, I know that they're maintaining sagittal centering if they feel their hamstrings, glutes, and internal obliques. So sometimes I look at something from the side and I say, hey, they look centered. They look like they're stacked. But then I ask them, what they're feeling, and they might say something like, well, I've got my uh, low back and my neck, and it's like, oh, you're, you're not. You've done something really funky to make yourself look that way, and my coaching eye isn't as good as I thought it was. There's checks and balances to this. So, you know, that to me, and there's frontal plane uh, sensory motor competencies and transverse plane sensory motor competencies that are different, but when I hear someone that reports back incompetence in the sagittal plane, for instance. You know, I have a troubleshooting checklist that I go through in my head that tells me what should I focus on to help this person become competent. And the answer for me in the sagittal plane every time is have them feel more of their heels, okay? And when they feel more of their heels, what it tells me is that it pulled their center of mass back. And generally speaking, the loss of control in the sagittal plane is when things go too far forward. You know, the thorax is too far forward, the pelvis is too far forward, or the skull is too far forward. So that to me is the underlying essence of what goes wrong with every sagittal plane exercise. So if we then move on out to pillar number four, which is movement progression and or regression just kind of depends on which way you look at it what i try to do with that pillar is build an algorithm that works for every motor pattern that you could ever teach and if you follow the algorithm it will bring you to an exercise that increases the probability that it's going to be a competently performed exercise pillar four has the 10 principles of progression and it has the propulsion arc. That's where the propulsion arc lives in the model. So the principles of progression, I always say them and I always get like nine. I can never remember all. I can, I can, I can name them off real quick. So the first one is sure. to start static. Mm -hmm. The second one is to start sagittal. The third is start bilateral uh, symmetrical. The fourth is to minimize the difficulty of managing gravity, which is kind of an interesting point we'll probably come back to. The yeah. fifth is limiting range of motion to the zone of sensory motor competency. The sixth is start with short levers. The seventh is provide reactive neuromuscular training. 
The eighth is maximize references, nine, maximize constraints, and 10, minimize load. So kind of a way yep. to advance and progress through all of those. Basically, when I think about this, anytime I'm watching any movement happening in front of me, and I think any human on earth can actually do this pretty easy. You can look at it and you say to yourself, well, that looks great or that looks terrible. Okay. Like it's not hard. Like anybody can be like, Ooh, that's bad. Like, I don't know much about, you know, fill in the blank, but that looks real bad. I don't know much about tennis, but this guy stinks. Okay. So the, the question to me is like, there's two questions that come after that, that are hard questions to answer. Why does this guy stink? And what are you going to do about it to make him better? Okay. So this pillar doesn't tell you why, but it tells you how to fix it. And if you literally just follow this thing, like, and, and I love it, like, you know, I, I like teaching the seminars and asking the audience questions, you know, and one of my favorites on this, this one is, okay, let's talk about running. Let's talk about sprinting. And if you look through all of this stuff, you know, how would you actually use these principles, what is the first exercise you would use in developing running for someone on day one? You got yourself a 14-year-old multi-sport athlete, and they play baseball, they play basketball, they play football, okay? The most dominant athletes in those, generally speaking, are going to be the fastest people, okay? You can't, do, you, can't you can't coach height, and you can't coach, you know, body mass necessarily, but you can coach the way that they run. And for all things being equal, if you're the same height and weight as somebody else in those sports, the better athlete is probably going to be the person that can run faster in a straight line. You know, let's be honest about it here. You know, if your 40 time is better in football or baseball, you're probably going to go uh, to a higher level in that sport. Probably basketball, too, I would imagine. And that has you know? a lot to do with uh, with your ability to turn on and off, on and off, on and off, and to be dynamic with your muscular actions as well, which goes into the nervous system, too, which I talk a lot about on this podcast. Um, yeah. You're kind of wired that way, right? You know, that's always the question I have is, like, you know, look at this list. You know, how what's the first drill that actually would make sense from the perspective of this of this algorithm? If you're going to work with someone and you're going to teach them how to run better. I think you know, I've heard you say seated arm swings. Yeah. Is that that's correct? Exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, well, let's just follow the thing. Like it's going to be, I'm going to start with short levers. Okay. I can sit you down in 90, 90, you know, just sit down on a bench or sit down on the ground in, in some kind of a short seated position. All right. It's static, believe it or not. You're not going anywhere. I got the person right there. They're not going anywhere. It's easier to manage gravity if they're seated compared to standing. You know, I can use something like RNT, you know, like, so I would use RNT by probably like, you know, there's two ways. I've seen Derek Hansen coach people with RNT, not call it RNT. You know, he'll use bands around them for acceleration drills oftentimes, but I've also seen him where he'll stand behind athletes when they're doing things like skipping or a runs and just have his hands pushing down on their shoulders. And that's typically the RNT that I would use as a coach in this particular instance is I'm going to push down on your shoulders because the direction I want you to move your posture in is up. 
So I, you know, oftentimes you can really pull it out when you put people in seated and you see what they're doing with their axial skeleton while they're performing a locomotion drill. You have so many people with their head shooting forward or something is just not in a great position. But as soon as I push down on your shoulders without saying anything to you, you'll reflexively go straight up and down and you'll push right back up on me. And, and it is just messing with the nervous system. Like whatever response I want, I push you in the opposite direction and you'll just reflexively push back on me. Like you don't mean to, you don't think about it. It's totally unconscious. Um, but there's my RNT. I have more constraints in place because, you know, I, I can build the constraints in as well. Like I can put things on the side of you or, you know, like you think of the typical things that people are going to do wrong with their arm swings. You know, they're like, I know that that one that Derek likes to use is the back against the wall. You know, he's always trying to get people out of utilizing too much back um, backside mechanics. So he'll just put your back against the wall. So now all you can do is, is stay front side. You know, you've got something as a reference on your back. So you know where you are in space. And that person's it's, probably never taken the time to feel that reference, you know, and, and to be that specific, the muscular orientation and the plane uh, that, we, that we've been referencing this entire time. So it, it makes perfect sense to, to slow yeah. it down and to take that because you don't have an opportunity to slow it down once you accelerate it. Right. And nope. you have no time to think about it. That's exactly it. So it's always like to me, I, I'm so much more interested in what's the most simple drill that's the beginning then what's the most advanced drill that's at the end? You know, there's, if you want to find advanced drills that are at the end, just scroll through Instagram. You're going to see a million of them and you're going to see a million of them performed somewhat poorly unless the person just happens to be like the genetic jackhammer and they're just an incredible athlete. But if you actually work with real people, most real people are terrible at exercise. But so this to me sets up this thing of like, how do I teach you to become good at anything that's exercise related? And this is my problem solving approach. Like it's, it is flexible in a lot of ways because the same rules apply in every single motor pattern. And you as a coach need to be smart enough to think about how to utilize them. You know, what we're describing here is like, and oftentimes these things come to you as you work your way through this algorithm of like, oh, okay, like, you know, a wall behind me provides constraints for my arms, but it also provides reference for my axial skeleton. Huh, that's interesting. Um, if I push down on the person's shoulders, that's RNT and they'll pop right up. Okay, I would do that if it's not working. You know, it's, it's all of these things that like are just interesting with how they kind of play themselves out. And the thing that I like about it, it's it's universal for every single motor pattern. I don't change the list of progressions for knee dominant or hip dominant or it's, it's all the same. You know, it's kind of like with change of direction, the first drill begins to tell you what it is. It's kind of like, it's going to be a bilateral stance. It's going to be sagittal plane. It's going to start static. And you're like, well, it's change of direction though. How do we do that? It's like, well, I want you to start on this line over here in a bilateral stance. And I want you to run forward for 10 yards. And then you're going to stop on that line in a bilateral stance. That's the whole drill for today because it's day one. We're going to start static. It's going to be sagittal. 
you're going to we're going to minimize the demands of gravity. I'm not going to have you accelerate 20 yards and have to slow that down. Hell, maybe it's only five yards if that's what you can handle from a velocity standpoint. You know, it's it's always and I'll know if it's being done right, because when the person comes to a stop and holds the position, they probably should feel some degree of abs if I have them in the right position and I can start them static. So it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing from that perspective. Triple extension, same thing. What's the first drill? A box jump. Why? It minimizes gravity. You know, I jump up. There's no there's no negative deceleration back to the ground. They're at zero velocity at the top of the box jump, and then I they land and they stick. They hold the position. It's static. It, so it, it plays itself out over and over again. And if you have if you just think about it. And it, because it, it needs to work in every facility too. Like, I don't know what you have for equipment, so I can't tell you what exercise is the exact exercise. You've hey, offered some some good exercises though, like the uh, split stance uh, against the wall, RDL. Like I've used that yep. a ton with my high school setting. And it's been great because uh, I was going to ask you about this, the squat versus the hinge. I don't tend yep. to find, and I know that the squat is hinged based as well. A squat is a hinge and a squat, but uh, that's how I teach it. But the squat I find people are better at naturally. Most people don't find this, but I find people struggle to find a true hinge and a true starting position. And it, you referenced it all earlier. I heard you say it, but doing those, that little subtle change where you talked about being able to push against something, the, re, the reactivity, the reflexive nature of it, man, the kids have really found their glutes and they found their posterior chain and they've centered themselves and been able to stop squatting into the movements and found a right. true hinge in that. I look at these things and, and that stuff goes into the later pillars and, and because pillars five, six, and seven are the ones. See, to me, pillar four tells you how to fix something. And then pillar five, six, and seven explain why that worked. Okay. And, and pillar five is going to be your movement strategies, which there's two of expansion and compression. Pillar six is your muscular orientation. There's only two of them, eccentric and concentric, short and long, or long and short with the way that I listed them. And pillar seven is muscular action, yielding and overcoming. And those things to me explain the difference between, uh, you know, a reactive drill and a large range of motion drill, a muscular drill and a connective tissue drill. Uh, it, it changes the target tissue and it changes like the outcome in a lot of ways. And it also explains, Hey, why can't my kids hinge or why can't my people squat or, you know, what's, what's the real reason why they can't do it. And, you know, then the, the integration of those last three pillars is, is what allows things to really emerge from a mechanistic or an expl explanation standpoint. So it's kind of like, if you can squat well and you struggle with a hinge, it's mostly the descent in both of them. You know what I mean? That's the thing that allows you to be able to actually do it right. Um, and I would say from a broad term perspective, there are squat muscles or AKA what I would think of as a squat is a vertical displacement of the pelvis through space. And there are hinge muscles or what I would think of as a horizontal displacement of the pelvis through space. And 
in order for you to be able to descend all the way down into the bottom of the squat, you need the squat muscles to be able to reach an eccentric or an, a long orientation. In order to be able to sit the hips back and go into the end range of a hinge, you need the hinge muscles to reach an eccentric or a long orientation. And now there's obviously a lot of different muscles that are associated with these things. Like you could hear all the old school kind of 1995 physical therapy statements kind of, you, you can already imagine what they're going to be. Oh, well, one's a quad dominant one versus a hamstring dominant or something like that. And it's like, I mean, I don't play in those games. Like it's, it's primarily the pelvic floor that's the interesting place to talk about when it comes to squat muscles versus hinge muscles, because those muscles are influenced by what's going on with the bony position of the sacrum and the innominate bone. And you have an anterior component of your pelvic floor and a posterior component of the pelvic floor. When you're able to squat straight down through a full range of motion, the anterior pelvic floor is able to reach an eccentric range of motion or an eccentric orientation while the posterior pelvic floor is held in a concentric orientation. And it's reverse for deadlift, right? It's reverse for deadlift. And, you know, when you start to talk about that concept of anterior is eccentric in the squat, posterior is eccentric on the hinge, that sort of is like, well, okay, is there a stereotypical presentation of different people that would make some people more likely to have an eccentric anterior or an eccentric posterior? And the answer to that is yes. Like if we go to pillar five and we have the two movement strategies, we have expansion, we have compression. And, and you could say that some people, there's the shape of their skeleton is biased more towards expansion and the shape of other people's skeleton is biased towards compression. And that, you know, when you, when you start to analyze these things, there's certain joint actions that are associated with expansion, certain joint actions that are associated with compression. There's certain respiratory components associated with expansion, certain <laughs> respiratory concepts associated, associated with compression. And that like, you know, you can begin to look at people and start to figure out who fits into each category a little bit more. But my expanded people are going to feature this pelvis with an eccentric anterior pelvic floor, and they can vertically move through space pretty easily. My compressed people are going to typically feature the posterior part of the pelvic floor being eccentric, and they're going to hinge pretty well. You know, when I, when I think about squatting versus deadlifting and I zoom way out on the concept in, in a lot of ways, like I, I've just, you know, I watch people do things unconsciously all the time. And when I watch people deal with hills, you know, when, when you watch someone walk up a steep hill, they hinge the whole way. I mean, that's what you do to go up a hill. When people walk down a steep hill, they have to squat. They, they really do. Like, that's the natural thing that you'll do in response to those things. So squatting to me is breaking. You know, it is your brakes. And deadlifting to me is accelerating. If you're going up a hill, you have to accelerate. If you're going down a hill, you have to decelerate it. 
the other thing to me, when I look at them from a really big picture, I look at where is the pelvis relative to the heels, okay? And with a squat, the pelvis, the butt is in line with the heels. With a hinge, the pelvis, the butt goes behind the heels. You know, it's like some of these things are so big picture and obvious that it's, but we lose sight of it. You know, it's, it's like we get so trapped into our own little world, our own little box. And we look at the same thing over and over with our, with our brain already made up with what we see and think like, you know, it's the Daniel Kahneman statement of what you see is all there is. And if you've been trained to see certain thing, then that's all there is. So I always try to uh, step outside of that as much as I possibly can. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's, that's one of the ways that I try to get people to step outside of, of their concepts. Like it's not a hinge because you're touching the object to the floor and picking it up off the floor. That's, you know, that's, that's not what it is. It's, it's the nature of where your pelvis is in space relative to your feet. You know, that you ever, that, you ever watch somebody point. try and squat a deadlift? I, I mean, I have, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like if I call it like a cinch point, um, if you're, if you're not in the correct cinch point, you like literally watch that they have to get that momentum started and the pelvis moves mm-hmm. way up. It's a squat. Basically, you're basically squatting a deadlift, which, which is what you're referencing there. Kind of uh, listen yeah. to you speak to that. And uh, just, I guess to kind of our, to tile this together and kind of, I'm from the ground up, the name of the podcast. So yeah. I want to talk about the gait cycle just a bit and jumping Absolutely. here um, and the elastic capabilities. So yeah. one of my big realizations, like you said, if you zoom out and you look at things and you and you begin to think about them, I watch people walk all the time. I like to watch people jump and I like to watch people walk for some reason, because I feel like if you tie those things together, we've been talking about sprinting and really sprinting is just jumping at an accelerated manner. Um, so I like to watch those two things and it just tells me a lot about people's strategies. And if you look at, we've talked a lot about the weight room, but if you look at people, some people don't have the sagittal centering we've talked about, but if you watch people walk, some people walk around on their toes all day. Um, Mm -hmm. So can we talk about kind of the gait cycle? And I think you've labeled it zone one, two, and three, as far as the proportion arc. How, yeah. how can we use that to kind of look at, or how, how would we rationalize that as far as gait sure. and bringing that into our training for yeah. elastic capabilities and reactivity Absolutely. off the ground? I, I love it. And I, I don't get to talk about this nearly as much as I like to on a lot of podcasts. So I like that we're spe- specifically going in on, on this. So my first sport, my, my favorite sport is still baseball. And, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, for me, if I didn't have the gift of being able to hit a baseball, my life probably would have taken a completely different trajectory. I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now. I mean, I'd, I'd be in jail, dead, or in a mental institution for sure. Nobody would have given a shit about me in any way, shape, or form. So I relate everything back to baseball. That's, that's kind of how it works. So to me, every motion that the human body can do has a wind-up, a strike zone, and a follow-through, okay? And that includes gait. And, and some people would be like, well, but gait is the essence. And I'm like, well, who the hell knows? Like, it, it, as long as you can relate something to something else that you understand on a high level, things can make sense. So to me, gait has a, a wind up, a strike zone or an impact point or whatever you want to call it, and a follow through. And the wind up is what could also be called early stance or, you know, that's the most common thing that I think it would be called. 
the strike zone would be mid stance and the follow through would be late stance or toe off. And so when you look at early stance, it's kind of like the heel hits the ground and the foot is out in front of the body. As soon as the heel hits the ground, boom, the foot falls. So you're going to see that the person is in plantar flexion at the level of the ankle. And the person's body mass is behind, the center of mass is behind the foot with walking. From there, and the person is generally speaking on more on the outside edge of the foot or on the heel, and the foot drops like that. Then the person is going to have their center of mass move forward over the foot. And the foot is going to begin rolling more to the inside edge of the foot. Uh, and this would be mid stance. And in the propulsion arc, or, or the way that I try to conceptualize the propulsion arc, this is zone two, impact point, strike zone, peak of compression, maximum compression. There's a million names that kind of get floated around with this thing. But to me, the thing that characterizes it is that you have more of your center of mass over the foot at this point than at any other point during gait. So you're loading all of the tissues of that leg to the highest degree that they're going to be loaded at any point during gait. You're also in the greatest amount of dorsiflexion during this time. Um, you're from a frontal plane perspective, your mass has lateralized over the stance foot to the greatest degree that it's going to at any point during gait. You have the greatest amount of adductor challenge, glute knee challenge, uh, transverse abdominus challenge on the same side as the, as the stance foot. They're all working from a, they're, they're all to me, they're yielding and they're accepting your mass. To me, there's, there's, yeah, it's, it's compression. It's all that sort of stuff. But it's also like it's you've, you've had to maximally absorb your body weight was was getting shifted over that way. You had to accept it. And it's the transitional point. It's you know, I've heard Bill Hartman talk about this. This place is the sticking point. It's the transitional zone. It's the place where you're going from the maximum absorption to the maximum now transition and getting out of that side all in the same kind of a phase. It's the, but it's the most demanding phase during the whole thing. Now that we're sort of coming out of this place, we're going to go more and more into plantar flexion again. We're going to finish the terminal phase of gait. We're going to go into being more on the front side of our foot and pushing off. Um, and so when you look at these things from a joint action standpoint, you're going to see a lot of similarities between zone one and zone three, and you're going to see the opposite taking place in zone two. So to me, like the joint actions that are dominating in zone one and zone two are from the ground up, we're going to see a foot that's supinating. We're going to see an ankle that is inverting. We're going to see, um, you know, from the, the actions of the leg, that it's going to be flexion, abduction, external rotation that are going to be dominating versus in zone two, in the middle, it's going to be dominated by dorsiflexion. It's going to be dominated by eversion. It's going to be dominated by pronation. 
it's going to be dominated by extension, adduction, and internal rotation in that part of the, of the phase, okay? So that to me is the real difference. Like, can you identify someone that is lacking in the zone one or zone three concepts or someone that's lacking in the zone two concepts? And generally speaking, you're going to see that some people's skeletons are again biased towards expansion or biased towards compression. Zone one and three are your expansion dominated phases and zone two is your compression dominated phase. It's the zone one and three are your brakes. Zone two is your gas pedal. It's, a, it's the switch zone two, but it's your gas pedal. It's, it's kind of like, boom, as soon as you pronate, as soon as you create that flick, as soon as that, that it, when you're in that dorsiflexion and extension and IR, that is your gas pedal versus the other ones. Because think about it, a windup is like you're, you're, you're breaking, you're, you're getting yourself there. You have to decelerate and you have to load. And now, boom, you, you hit, the, you hit the, the point of maximum impact in the middle. And, and that, that wind-up to... wind that, you, that you're referring to, one of the things I like to tell kids, I, I won't even tell them how to jump, but I, time to me is one of the most important things in life and in the way that you do things, like the way that you, you strategize with time and, and your time on the ground, especially with jumping. I'll say jump. I won't tell them. I won't say I want quick reactivity. I won't tell them I want a muscular orientation or anything. I, won't, yeah. I just want to see what is your choice? Because to me, that shows me typically are they expansion or compression uh, dominant yeah. because they will choose the natural strategy. Um, and there's times within my own lifting cycle that I will go more towards the compression strategy because we're already heavily compressed in that time. And there's times where I want to go more expansionist. But that's yeah. kind of how I've rationalized it. And like you can see it in like what you referenced. If you know the joint actions, people are stuck in the joint actions in their everyday gait. Like I literally watched them; they're fully externally rotated, just about waddling around, right? Yeah. Uh, so like these things that you're speaking to, if you open your eyes, like you said, you think about it unconsciously. I'm looking all the time. I'm like, okay, exp uh, compression, expansion. You see it around you all the time. But that's one of the ways that I've strategized. Like, let me see what you think jumping is. You know, right. before even speaking on a time domain. I really like that what you're talking about there because you really do see that difference with the people that are like you know some people jump like a cat and other people are like you know uh like quick like well, quicksand is probably the wrong thing i was thinking because it's always slow when they're falling into it but you know you watch a cat jump up, up on the counter and it's almost like you didn't even see it bend its leg it's just like boom it's just gone versus other people there's these slow deliberate low squat position like take a million years to get off the ground and they have to utilize and rely on expanding big expansion before the that but that's not always how sports are played you know i i would love to see that you've got access to both abilities and to me like you know this term movement variability or there's a million terms that get floated around all the time variability movement variability blah 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 to me it's like your table tests either are passing or failing, you know? And that to me is your movement variability. Like, because I'll tell you, like you can do the same training movement over and over again, but if you don't, if you don't pass your table tests, then you probably have to do your training movements very close to the same way over and over again. Because even the analysis, when you take 
very high level power lifters and you watch them squat, it's a different squat every time. Okay. And that's probably good for the most part. It actually kind of spreads out some of the stress on the tissues to a certain degree, even Max if it's the hammer. same. Maxwell's yeah. hammer, right? That's it. Like it's the same thing, but it's not the same thing. It's, it's spread out enough versus like, if you become someone, if your table tests are worse, it actually means that you have to use a more similar approach every time. And that doesn't allow you to spread the stress out as much, which basically just like, it's almost like if you were to just, you know, scrape at the same spot on anything over and over again, you're going to wear that thing down and it's going to break sooner than if you scraped over here, you scraped over there, you scraped in the middle, you scraped over here, you scraped over there, you scraped in the middle. The more that you can do that, the, the more times you can scrape total. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because that was one point I wanted to throw in there for people to realize. I've always heard you reference the idea that you need to have full capability for both. Like we're always trying to bring the spectrum to the center to where you can both expand and compress. I forgot to throw that in there whenever I was making that point. But yeah, I, it, it kind of depends, though. Like it's almost like if you are a power lifter and if that's all you do, you probably don't need to have. I mean, you definitely don't need to have full movement variability, you know. Like you need to just have enough to be able to get into the, you need to get white lights on your lifts. That's about it, you know? And you probably need to become as about as highly compressed a human as you can and with as concentric muscular orientations as you possibly can. And probably when you fail your lifts is because something caused you to have a, you know, a compensation that went expansion related. You know, like you lost your concentric orientation. The forces were too high, probably a GTO fired and you had an inhibitory impulse and you went into some kind of, a, you know, an inhale or expansion compensation. And, and similar probably with, with like why, why someone would fail on a long jump. You know what I mean? It's almost like a person goes flying down the lane and they hit and they just don't like it didn't happen for them or something along those lines. They probably lost orientation of the tissue because you got to stay as concentric as possible. And they probably lost it. And the GTO fires. And because I would bet a lot of these things like, you know, you hear all these terms, stiffness, super stiffness, MTU stiffness. That's it just kind of gets floated as that's all there is. But there's always something that has to explain why something would have a level of stiffness. And to me, it's the ability to hold on to a concentric orientation during the yielding phase of a movement. And the more that you're able to do that, the more that you're able to use muscle spindle activity to be able to really generate both, like basically a stretch shortening cycle phenomenon to a really high degree from a neurological output perspective, you can capture and release elastic energy more effectively. And the muscle behaves in a shortened position in more of an isometric manner Whereas the tendon is now the dynamic thing that actually goes through uh, stretch and recoil. Being able to own the eccentric orientation, like I watch kids, like just not talking about powerlifting, but everything in general, running, cutting, jumping. Yep. If you can't own the eccentric uh, portion of it, I truly believe that you can't be dynamic in the return. Um, that's in a squat. That's in a jump. It's in everything. A lot of my philosophies, you know, they, they go around like depth jumps and, and getting used to absorption um, and using super heavy eccentrics with lifters strategically who are proficient in their movements. After you've yep. gone through all these other 
other things that we've discussed. So a lot of the things that you just peppered in there are things that have really taken my kids to the next level athletically. I've seen it kind of, you know, come to fruition in the last couple of years. And whenever I had that realization, I was like, wow, it's really almost in reverse. Everybody's focusing on this return, but until we can control the return, until we can absorb, we can't return. Um, and, you know, yeah. Cal, Cal Dietz has been a big proponent of that. And I've, I've had Cal on, I've I talked about triphasic multiple times. So that's somewhat uh, kind of in this zone. It as well. is. And, and it's funny because like, to me, like the terminology can become, a problem for people sometimes. And, and it's, I try to stick with the same terminology of, you know, the, the, the orientations of the muscle being concentric or eccentric, because the, the, where it's important to me is what we're talking about is for a lot of athletic movements, the absorption phase is the critical phase. It sets the stage. It's the windup. Like if you can, you can talk all you want about the, the drive and the propulsion, but if your windup is not right, you're, you're not setting the stage for the, the drive and the propulsion to be effective. So it's the key to me with athletic movements is that you have to keep a concentric orientation of the right muscles during the yielding phase. Okay. And when that is lost, when you go into an eccentric orientation during yielding, that's when you lose the, the pop coming out of there. So, uh, you know, I try to have it be a very systematic explanation from a movement perspective. If like from the perspective of a yielding direction, which is absorbing versus the perspective of an overcoming direction, which is propelling through space, um, you know, you have, it's the same muscles that are involved with both of those directions with those muscles, it's kind of like, if I want to move through a large range of motion in the yielding direction, the muscles need to go into an eccentric orientation. If they're in a concentric orientation, you will not move through a large yielding range of motion. Okay. The concentric orientation of the muscle is the blocker for yielding range of motion. If you want to move into a large range of motion in the overcoming direction, the muscles need to go into a full concentric orientation. If they aren't able to achieve that because they're going into an eccentric orientation, they can't go into a full range of motion. This to me is such an important factor from a mechanistic explanation standpoint that I feel like doesn't get enough love. Every time I talk about this, I feel like it either choom, it goes by people or it's not appreciated or something along those lines to the degree to which I want this point to be made. Because when someone, like if you think about it, like the gas pedal, the ability to, to drive something through space, yourself or a shot or a baseball or a javelin, you have to go into full range of motion in the overcoming direction. That's the only way, like, and, and that has to happen with a concentric orientation. If you want to utilize elastic energy to be able to propel something through space, the only way you're going to be able to do that is to hold the concentric orientation during the yield, because now you'll get the tendon stretch. So I was talking about something like triphasic training. It's teaching you how to hold a concentric orientation during the yield. 
That's what it's doing. You're spending time with learning how to do that. I know in, in the book, it talks about how the hockey players that just did the lifting protocol improved on their agility drills better than the, the players that actually practice the agility drills in the offseason. And to me, it's because if you want to be really fast in agility drills, you're fast because you're able to hold the concentric during the yield, and then you're able to maximize the concentric during the overcoming part. And that just says it all to me like that. And that is the difference between basically all kinds of movement. And it just depends on what kind of movement do you want to be able to do? Like, do you want to do yoga? If that's the case, well, you have to be able to get into eccentric orientations for a whole bunch of tissues, you know, or, you know, do you want to be a, uh, you know, do you, do you want to be a super reactive pinball kind of an athlete? You know, if that's the case, you better learn how to hold on to concentric orientations. And the two activities couldn't be more divergent if, you know, under any kinds of circumstances. Like, it, it's, it's interesting that which feels good to athletes versus that which actually measures out as being pretty good for athletes. I don't want you to lose your movement potential below a critical threshold place. Like, I don't want to sabotage your table tests and have you become completely devoid of movement capabilities. But I want to basically drive your force production and your ability to stay concentric right up to that point, right there. If I go too far, you turn into me and you become an absolute stiff and you can't move on under those circumstances except within like a very small window of movement capabilities. But if all you do is lengthen and stretch and all this other stuff, well, you're, you're, you're going to have no, you're going to be like the opposite of a super ball. And most sports, the super ball wins, even if they've lost some range of motion, the super ball usually wins, you know? So I hope that that illustrates it enough. Like, cause I'm, I'm always after like individual drills or like specific nuanced exercises is not my jam. You know what I mean? That's not what wakes me up in the morning and gets me excited. It's the kind of behind the scenes sort of mechanistic representation of the big picture of what differentiates movements from each other. And to me, this is such a differentiator. It's not even funny. And it's why for some people, strength training can be so important for making them faster or better at change of direction, but up to a certain point, you know, and up to that point is probably like where your strength training has now exceeded your table test returns, you know, strength train, like it's this classical question of how strong is strong enough, strong enough so that you don't sabotage your table tests, because there's probably KPIs in your table tests that if you play this sport, you have to have this much range of motion. And as soon as you lose this much range of motion, you're, you're incapable of doing the sporting movements for your sport now. So back off, Re, like probably lose some weight, lose some tissue, lose some of your concentric orientation and your compression. And now you kind of like, it's almost like to me, progressive overload or program design. Like right now, you're as strong as you can get without losing your motion capabilities. We're going to hold there and maintain. And you're going to maintain and maybe we can even 
increase your movement capabilities at this current body weight and strength level. And now in the future, I'm going to try to bump you up to another level until we start to lose table tests. And now we'll hold. It's, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. You can't be, you can't step on stage for the Olympia. You know what I mean? We're, we're never going to get you there because they're going to have zero movement capabilities. They don't care about that. That's not the sport. Yeah. Your sport is soccer, you know, like whatever. You're speaking towards balance. And like, I can also just to kind of close this out, speak to that as well, because Yes, I said I do powerlifting, but I spend a lot of time with kids that powerlift and play football. And you need the ability to be dynamic and to be able to absorb and not to be a a cinder block because people are like that that make quick cuts. That's how you end up getting hurt, like you talked about. Or you're just, you know, you're one step slow because you're moving around like a box, like you you talked about, extremely compressed. So finding that balance, and it's right, like you have to have some structural uh, integrity in a sport, a contact sport like football or rugby or things like that, but you also have to have that balance that pop the guy even at the line of scrimmage for the big uglies they have to it's who gets off the ball quicker so you know speed and power production are extremely important so a lot of the things that that you've mentioned today you know if if you take time and you look at dr pat's book you're going to see this all kind of laid out and i love the way that you did it i just suggest anybody that reads it take your time don't rush through it i've gone back to it multiple times and every time i go back i see something new so everything that we kind of hodgepodge and discussed and talked about uh today check out the book check out the seminar series uh i believe you have online offerings as well is that correct i'm gonna give you a chance to talk about that in just a second check all this stuff out guys because everything that he's referenced today he's got it in such a nice package uh i've taken tons from it it's a it's taken me to another level as a person trainer and also as people who work with athletes uh, on a daily basis so i've taken a ton from you and i really appreciate you for taking time out of your day to sit down with me i'm just gonna give you an opportunity before we jump off to talk about where people can find you and the offerings that you have as well i enjoy these kinds of conversations you know what i mean like i i got into this industry because i love training and movement you know what i mean like and, and I, I've generally found I really enjoy the other people in this industry. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's, I, I'm always like, oh man, like it's, it's not even taking my, taking time out of my day. This is what I like to do. And um, I also, I like to help get concepts across, you know what I mean? And I think in, in large part, because, you know, I, I look back at my own training and I, I, I started lifting weights in 1994. You know, it's kind of like, that's a long time ago now. It's almost, it's almost 30 years. It's going to be 30 years of lifting weights in two years. And I got into doing that. Like at that time, as a a kid that wanted to be a pro baseball player, you got the Bash brothers, you got Bo Jackson, you got all these dudes that looked like they were going to be able to step on stage at the Olympia, basically. And it was kind of like, you can come to this easy conclusion. If I want to be a pro baseball player, and that's what I'm saying I want to do above and beyond anything else in my life. I better start lifting some damn weights, you know, or I'm never going to make it because I need to look like the guys that I'm seeing. And it was funny at that time, ESPN had uh, all the fitness shows on. So it'd be sports center up until like 9, 10 a.m. And then after that, you got like the Sean Ray bodybuilding show that would come on. And then you got the aerobic show and blah, blah, blah. So it was like, it, it, at least for like a, you know, a 12 year old, 14 year old brain, it's a very clear cut concept. Like, this is what I want to do. 
there's the highlights. And then after that, here comes the, the lifting shows that these guys are even more jacked than the Bash Brothers. So this is what you got to do. Anyways, it's um, like I, I do love this stuff, you know, and I plan on training till the day I die. Like it is, it ain't ever going to stop, you know, and I plan on being able to run fast and lift heavy right up until the moment where I keel over. And if I keel over in the middle of a sprint or a squat, that's a pretty good way to go. So, yeah, it's just it's a pleasure for me to be able to. And, and here's the other thing. I trained so dumb back then. I would have been so grateful for anybody to give me anything that could have been helpful. And I still I don't know. There's some part of my brain that thinks that I'm going to have to get ready for the NFL combine tomorrow. Like I go through life being like, oh, tomorrow's the combine again. So anyways, whenever I learn something that's super helpful, I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. Like, that's the best feeling. You know, I've gone through a lot of different feelings in life, and I still feel like some of the best feelings are when somebody drops useful knowledge on me that helps me with my primary passion and pursuit in life. So anytime I can provide that for somebody else that cares as much, like that's, that's a great feeling for me. So I do have all of this material available. I've got, you know, the easiest place right now. Well, because it's still in the beginning for me, like things are still getting built out from like a website standpoint, blah, blah, blah. I don't do that stuff. I have other people take care of those ends of it for me. But my Instagram will lead people to everything that I offer. I've got all the rethinking the big patterns associated material. There is the book. Uh, that's called A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement, Rethinking the Big Patterns. There is an online course that is an introductory seminar with an introductory quiz associated with it. There are three in-person seminars. There's control patterns, athletic patterns, and resistance patterns. And there is also going to be a final exam for people uh, back on the, on the website for Rethinking the Big Patterns. Because I, I want to make sure that people that are doing this are like if there's a million degrees you can get and certifications that you can get, but do they mean anything? You know, I want this to really mean something. So the way to finish the certification process with this is to do the online introductory quiz and seminar, to attend the in-person seminars that are hands-on, and then to pass the final exam, which is based on the book. So if you can actually do all those things and finish the seminar, I think you're a pretty damn dynamic coach. And I know you put a hell of a lot of work into actually learning this material, which I do believe is very useful. It's not just me trying to make a bunch of money and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I, I, I really, like I said, I've been lifting weights since 1994. I've been involved with training for almost 30 years. I've been obsessed with it for that time. And I've, I feel like I've learned a hell of a lot from a, a lot of amazing coaches over that time. And I've tried to consolidate that information and put it in one place so that people can really benefit from it. And I tried to make it something where it's not easy. You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to bleed basically to be able to, to go through the whole process. But if you, you know, if they always kind of say like, uh, you know, nothing good comes easy. This is not going to come easy. You know, but if it came easy, it wouldn't be good. So that, that's kind of the, the quick and dirty on the rethinking the big patterns information.
Yeah, and I'll, I'm going to link everything in the show notes. So anybody listening that's interested, I'll have your Instagram linked, and I'll also have your, your website linked. You offer things, uh, I believe, like your athletic weapon program, too, uh, yes. where people can kind of see the way that you train. Um, I've been meaning to jump onto that, so I'm going to I'm gonna get on that and see what you're up to. I listened to you talk about it uh, the other day, but all great concepts, man. And, and just to kind of side note to what you said, like, don't be intimidated by the material. Like if you listen to this, don't be intimidated by it. The first time I read the book, I had to set it down. I was like, Oh crap. But you know what? I came back to it and I've read it two or three other times. Now, if you just, if you just take the time and read it and just kind of chew on bits and pieces of it, it all fits together like really nicely. So everything that you've said today, it's just an intro guys. If you really want to see the whole system and see how it all fits together, great book, great system. Uh, so take the time to check that out. So Dr. Pat, I appreciate you again for taking time out of your day, man, and sitting down with me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your time as well. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the show notes for links to Dr. Pat's book, socials, as well as webpage, where all of his offerings are listed. If you feel led to do so, you can leave up to a five-star rating on Apple and a review. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with all my latest offerings. <music>